Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. I am really excited to have this conversation today because it's an important one about sugar diets and early sobriety, as well as a whole lot more. I wanted to have this conversation because this topic is one that comes up all the time with women who are trying to stop drinking, both in the context of having how they feel physically, being a big motivator for why they want to stop drinking. Either they want to lose weight or be healthier, get better sleep or do their workouts. And it also comes up as we really encourage sober treats in early sobriety to rework and reprogram your automatic cue craving response reward structure. And women have a lot of fears around replacing alcohol with sugar as a treat in early sobriety. And of course, sober treats don't have to be food and they don't have to be sugar, but there is a lot of sugar in alcohol and there is a connection in allowing you to let go of that really harmful substance 
by replacing some of those cravings with sugar. So another thing that happens is that a lot of women have also tried to combine drinking with some kind of a weight loss diet or something like Whole30 that eliminates alcohol as part of the program. And that's something I know I recommend against and a lot of other coaches do because it can really sabotage your efforts in early sobriety. You feel a lot of deprivation and you're generally feeling unhappy and you can't tell whether it's because you've cut out everything you love to eat or because you cut out drinking. So I brought on the perfect person to give us all a lot of food for thought on this topic and likely ideas that you may not have considered in the past. My guest today is Ingrid Michelson-Miller. She's a diet recovery and a weight-neutral life coach, and she's also my sober bestie. Ingrid and I met five years ago when we were both in very, very early sobriety on one of those secret not-drinking Facebook groups. Our sober dates are actually only 60 days apart, which is insane after five years. We have been together on you know, our first three months and our first six months and our year anniversary and job ups and downs and marriage stuff and everything fucking in between. And on the day this episode is airing, April 15th, Ingrid is actually hitting her five-year sobriety date, which is amazing. So Ingrid, welcome to the podcast. And I should say welcome to the podcast again, Because Uh if you go back to my sixth episode, Ingrid was one of my first guests. We talked about being lonely in sobriety and how to find friends. And that is if you go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash six, you can hear a whole nother hour of Ingrid and I chatting on all things, finding friends and having fun in sobriety. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I love that intro. Thank you. I know it was a really long one, but we have a lot lot of history. We do. We do. And I'm so grateful for that. Me too. We've talked about many times how it's possible neither one of us could have kept going during the ups and downs of this whole not drinking process because it challenges so much more than physical sobriety. It's about identity and coping mechanisms and worldview and fears of the future and memories of the past and all that shit. Everything. As well as identity in terms of your body and weight and everything you're going to talk about today. Yes. Well, it's funny because I, I heard once, and it was on the Unruffled podcast, actually, um, I heard once uh, someone refer to getting sober as the midlife solution. And I do think there are a lot of women, probably men too, who when they quit drinking, their headspace is so cleared up, right? You get to that point where you're no longer white, you know, white knuckling for lack of a better term, right? Um, Struggling. And you have all this room and space to think about the meaning of life, to think about what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And you suddenly have these wonderful realizations about what matters to you and what you, you know, what you want on your gravestone, for lack of a better term. I, on the other hand, got sober and had all this headspace and realized I have a second whispering voice in my head, you know? Um, So there was that whisper, stop, you know, you really shouldn't be drinking, you're wasting your life, right? So I quit drinking. And then this other whisper, which was really more of a roar, was like, you have spent your whole life trying to change your body, trying to make it smaller, 
um, and you've gone up and down and you've been successful and unsuccessful, you've noticed because you're not ridiculously unobservant that it never permanently stayed where you wanted it to be or where I wanted it to be. I noticed that. And that cycle, which by the way, at 40, whatever I was, 42, was already getting kind of exhausted of its power. Oh my God, <laughs> like, I've been in that was, cycle since I was like, yeah. what, like 16, maybe even 13. Yeah. And it's exhausting. It is exhausting. And I was getting less good at it instead of better after all that practice, right? Like the cycles were getting shorter. I was feeling worse and worse. I was gaining more weight at the end of every cycle. And I I was just fed up, right? But it was still filling my head. So when I got sober in those early days, I was still very steeped in diet culture, the desire to become thinner, the desire to prevent getting fatter. I think that was my biggest fear because I started eating all the things in sobriety. And I heard someone, a bunch of people on the BFB, which we've talked about before, which is a private secret Facebook group, all these wise, sober women saying, eat all the things, do whatever you need to do, just don't drink, right? And to me, that rang as empty, for lack of a better term. It didn't seem, yeah, it was empty. It was kind of like, oh, you can say that because you're a thin bodied person. Ah, Like you You can't say that to me. You don't get it. That's actually just true, right? Like you have real stigma attached to being fat in the world, right? Or bigger body, depending on, you know, there's a huge spectrum of being different sizes. So they didn't get it in my mind. And therefore they were basically saying it doesn't matter. But what they meant was it doesn't matter. In my my head, I translated it as um, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it because you'll still be in the range of, you know, attractive you know, or normal, right? Like you can't gain too much weight or whatever. Eventually you'll go back to your original weight, right? That's another thing that people promised a year or two. Don't worry about it. Just eat all the things. And I panicked. I was like, this is BS. Like I can't just let go because if I let go, there is no telling where I'll stop. Yeah. I will eat my, I will eat until I die of eating. I don't know if that's a thing. (laughs) In fact, I know it's not. But at the time, letting go of the reins, the reins were so tight that letting go of them was terrifying. Well, and that's part of the issue, right? In early sobriety, we're like, you know, I talked to women about, and I know people told me in early sobriety as well, like what you've been doing up until now hasn't been working in terms of... Mm. I'm going to stop drinking, but I'm not going to eat the sober treats. I'm going to stop drinking, but I'm not going to do this suggestion. So why not try something different? Because this thing, this drinking thing for those of us who have a problem is truly bringing us to a low place physically, mentally, emotionally. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, let's put out the burning fire first and then you actually have the mental space and the physical energy and, you know, the perspective to deal with other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And what's important to understand is that, well, first of all, let's have compassion for people who are freaked out about gaining weight because yeah. the world truly does treat fatter people differently than thin people. And there are studies that are done um, in one study, uh, I think it was something around there of people would rather lose a limb than be fat. And 30% would rather be alcoholic than be fat. Wow. 
and I'll, I'll we can put the link to the study in in your yeah. show notes because yeah. it, it's it's real. So this is a real blocker for people in getting sober because while we think we get rid of all those calories when we quit drinking, in fact, for some reason. And again, I don't think we have real research on this, by the way. I've asked a few people, experts in this field. We don't really know why it doesn't just automatically translate to weight loss. It's not just because we're eating sugar. It just doesn't, right? It's not an immediate. And I've heard like, like drinking just fucks up your metabolism and your it does, you know, yeah. everything in There's your body. You've been ingesting yeah. these toxins. So who knows? If you're not sleeping well. That is absolutely the number one like metabolism killer. If you're not sleeping well, like there goes your metabolism. Like there are so many factors to how your body functions optimally. The other factor is that, and this is something that again, I'll put a link or I'll send you the link for this. Um, There's a TED talk about why diets don't work. And one of the things to understand about bodies, and this is something that diet culture would have you not believe. So bear with me for a second, but our bodies operate like a thermostat. So uh, we have a, what's called a weight set point range. And it's between, they think between 10 and 20 pounds for every single human being. And it's genetically predetermined. The only way to change it, there there are a number of ways to permanently change your weight set point range. One is illness. Another is mobility changes, right? Like you lose a limb, (laughs) you can't, can't move anymore. Another is aging, right? We all know that our bodies change as we age. And then uh, the third is dieting. And the way dieting permanently changes your body weight set point range is upward because every time you restrict below your weight set point range, which by the way, a lot of women are in the diet binge cycle, right? But it's within their set point range. So they still have a lot of belief around the effectiveness of it because they can maintain 10 pounds lighter for multiple years, right? Or 20 pounds lighter. Um, It's when you go out of that range that it's unsustainable like scientifically unsustainable. And that's what we're learning about it. So point being, your body is a thermostat and it's gonna do everything it can to keep you at your current weight or whatever your weight set point is, actually, you know, cause I have no idea where your weight is right now. So, so it's gonna fight to keep you steady. So you're drinking a ton of wine, tons of calories, doesn't matter. You're still not gonna go above your set point range, right? you're going to maybe hit the ceiling of your set point range, but calories in calories out is just factually wrong. Our bodies don't process calories that way. It processes calories to maintain your weight, not to adjust up and down based on how much you're consuming. So in fact, you know, when I was going through this, I'm terrified moment in my early sobriety days, eating all the things. And I ate more food than you can even imagine. I don't want to get into specifics, but it was, Like I really let go of the reins. I was like, all right, fine. Right. I got all mad. And then I did it. And I was eating a pint of ice cream every day and I, and I'll just keep going. Right. It was all the food carbs. I mean, suddenly I was having English muffins for breakfast. I hadn't touched bread in years and I had English muffins in the house. You hadn't touched bread in years. Well, I had tried to avoid bread. Let's put it that way. Of course I had slipped up, but I really, really was a no carb gal. Right. That was my, my whole thing. Oh my God. So I have English muffins in the house. I have pasta for dinner. I have sandwiches for lunch, right? And that sounds normal to me, right? I'm like, of course you have sandwiches for lunch and pasta for dinner. For me, that was radical. 
Oh my um, gosh. And this just tells you how I was, no matter what my body size was before getting sober, I was below my set point because I was restricting carbs like crazy. Mm-hmm. And I was still whatever body type I, I was, but I was below my set point. So the minute I took the lid off, my body's like, yay, we'll go back to your set point range, whatever it is. Doesn't matter if it's pretty, right? Like it's just going to get there. So there I was unrestricting. Um, and I ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. And I gained 10, maybe 20 pounds in that process. And then it just stopped, it leveled out. And I continued to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. So there's an upper limit to your range and there's a bottom limit to your range. Most of us spend our time intentionally trying to get below our, our range. But in reality, if you like actually did an experiment to try to get above your set point range, it would be equally difficult. And you said that your set point range can go up, right? As you get older or as you yes. diet and restrict or if you don't move, right? Correct. Yes. So the, yeah. those are ways to like permanently up, increase. Now the TED talk that I'm going to link to the why diets don't work says this very sad thing that we all have to grieve, I think, um, in the process of recovering from diet culture and diet cycling, which is this idea that there is absolutely no scientifically known way to reduce your weight below your set point range. And Plenty I of totally, ways to go so above. We've, we've been friends for five years, yeah. good, good friends, had lots of conversations. And I have to say that talking to you has sort of set me on this emotional journey, right? Where I've been like, no, I don't want to believe that because believing that right. means giving up. And yeah. I am not at, you know, the goal weight that I, you know, want to be at or whatever it is. And of course, yep. that goal weight, by the way, is like I've gained and lost 30 pounds probably five or six times in my life, right? Probably didn't, you know, gain 30 pounds, but gained a bunch of weight in in high school and then lost it and then gained weight in my early 20s when I lived on my own and was working and then lost it and then gained weight before my wedding and then like dropped 35 pounds for my wedding and then gained weight with each kid and lost it. And also I lost weight in early sobriety. I was also doing all the workouts and all the things. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, my, you know, ideal set point weight or the weight I want to be is of course, when I was 27 years old and lost (laughs) all the weight before my wedding and I'm 45. And so, you know, I'm like, when you were telling me this, I was like, okay, intellectually, I believe it because it fucking Mm -hmm. makes sense. Right. But no, if I do that, (laughs) a I'm giving up, right. I'm giving up and, you know, giving up on, on being that weight again. And that's what I see in the magazines and that's what I think is right. And, you know, it takes up so much headspace. So I have to say that, you know, I admitted before we had this call that I'm, I'm not totally there yet. Like I'm still in the matrix in being like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, wait. And no, like, I don't Mm -hmm. want this to be Mm -hmm. true. And there's so much Mm -hmm. more there, but I'm just, in case you're listening to this and you're like, fuck no, like that's okay. (laughs) Right. Like that's okay. Absolutely. That's that's what we're wrapping our head around. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the fuck no coming from someone who's in a larger body is going to be a much scarier fuck no than from someone coming from it in a thinner body, right? Because the world, I'll say it again and again, 
weight stigma is real. Nobody wants to be fat, right? And the stigma around fatness would be extremely different if absolutely everybody understood the thermostat concept. If nobody believed that it was your own fault, your own damn fault for eating too much, that, you know, if your body size was understood to be the same thing as hair color and eye color and nose shape and ears, right? If really everybody believed that, nobody would be as afraid of being fat. There might still be beauty standards that we can't achieve, but it wouldn't be quite the same shame that we feel, right? Because people literally believe everybody, including, you know, myself prior to all of this work, that it's my own damn fault. If only I had more discipline, if only, right. Well, and right. I listened to something that actually made sense to me. And I'm, you know, I admitted to you before that I might say things that you cringe at because they're not (laughs) right. And I want you to call me out on it, but I was listening to, and I think it was a, you know, talking body podcast, but it was around, you know, it was, it was health at every size. And there was a, um, there was a, a speaker on, and she was basically like, you've been brainwashed we all have. And there is this standard of what is the body that you should have that we've all bought into since we were 11 years old and watching our moms. And Mm. it is like, if you think about dogs, not that from Harry met Sally, someone (laughs) is supposed to be a dog in this scenario, but (laughs) it is like, there is, you know, the ideal body, right? The fitness instructor on Instagram is a Pomeranian. (laughs) You're going to cringe when I say this and that we have all been told that like Pomeranians are the ideal dog type. And if we all just eat this eating plan and do these workouts or whatever, we too can be a Pomeranian and like, maybe you're a great Dane, maybe you're, you know, a pug, maybe you're um, a golden retriever. I kind of like to think of myself as a golden retriever. Like that's my, this is a great metaphor. And like, you're never, you're a golden retriever. That's awesome. You're never fucking going to be a Pomeranian. And yet we're all like, mm-hmm. no, no. You know, they tell you if you just eat this and if you just have enough discipline and if you just, you know, work out enough, you too will be a Pomeranian, Great Dane. Well, and can you imagine, imagine you have a Great Dane and you starve it to make it a Pomeranian. Yikes. I, how cruel, right? Yeah. But we do that to ourselves for our entire lives. It's true. But and mostly because we're not educated. You know, when the Great Dane sits there and is tells himself he's a piece of shit every goddamn right for 40 years because he's not a Pomeranian, right? That's messed up. <laughs> like, what the fuck is up. wrong with me? I'm such an ugly dog. Yeah. And and so let's um briefly transition into the question the question of health, because I think that's what comes up in everyone's mind. They think of either themselves or someone else who has uh, who has a much larger body and they have diabetes. Like there's this correlation in our minds and in our cultural understanding of diabetes, type two, sorry, to be clear, or um, other conditions. And they, they think, oh, it's all their fault, right? Which we have just established it is not. Part one, part two, they've created diabetes by having a body of that size, which also is not scientifically proven. In fact, it is purely correlated, meaning you could catch diabetes or get diabetes and it could make you gain weight. That could be a cause of the weight Mm. gain. We don't know. It may not be that weight gain causes diabetes, right? So that's just one example 
of misconceptions around fatness and health. But I think the biggest misconception is that you can't be healthy and be fat, like really fat, medium fat, you know, average fat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because they show you like the fat gathering around your heart and around your lungs. I know. I know. But in fact, if you look at statistics, and I'll share this chart with you, Casey, and if you want, you can put it on the or show a link to it or something like that. Um, But if you look at health outcomes and you have a group of people in different weight ranges, so like underweight, normal weight, overweight or obese, et cetera, in the category of doing nothing else, right? So the people in this group smoke, they drink, (laughs) they don't exercise. Let's just use those as examples. Then you have some differences in lifespan. Like the, the really large people might have shorter lives than the really small people. When you move into removing those other life habits, so let's say um, you have another group at the end of the chart, right? That um, it's hard to visualize this, but I'll try to explain it. Um, if they exercise, don't smoke and don't drink, there's almost no difference hmm. in health outcomes. Well, part of that makes sense to me, right? Because like exercise, don't smoke and don't drink, like you're not you know, causing cancer, right. you're, you're moving right. your body, the heart disease part of it, that intellectually makes sense to me. Right. So fatness itself is not a disease, right? It's not a diseased state. So it, it's something that we kind of assume is true, that they must have high blood pressure, they must have they, I say, in air quotes, <laughs> we must have, you know, all these problems associated with it. We, probably have knee pain, back pain, blah, blah, blah. In fact, if you pursue average amounts of physical fitness and don't smoke and don't drink, there's actually no difference. And counterpoint to this is that it's actually, and this is a social justice point, it's none of our freaking business, whether someone's healthy or not. And it's not my job to tell someone they need to change their body or change how they eat or change how they move or smoke or drink to make, you know, to make myself happy, right? Like I, it, it's none of my business. So it's, it's a concept um, called healthism where yeah. like people are like policing other people for their choices. And like, I actually have every right to not pursue health, but with all that said, it is possible to be healthy and fat. Now the issue of whether people think you're attractive or not, I can't change that. A lot of that is informed by, like, I could go on forever, but, you know, body ideals have their roots in racism and slave trade, which is fascinating. And I could go on for two hours about that. Feel free to go research that, Google it. And I I feel like that's (laughs) just, well, I'm sure it's been known and discussed for years and years, but I feel like I've only heard about that more and more in the last year. Like I, I completely see that now, but it's something that is only now coming to my consciousness and whether that's only because I finally like stopped drinking and looking around and coaching and learning more, but I buy into that. But um, can you recommend a book that, that you think is good on that topic? I, I love the book, Fearing the Black Body, and I'm blanking on the name of the author right now, okay. so we'll, I can pull that up, but yeah. Um, it really okay, lays so out for the you. idea is that what is attractive is a construct. And we can see that right throughout we time. We know that. Like, yeah. obviously, like 
you know, Marilyn Monroe was seen as very, very attractive. And she is, you know, very attractive or was, and other women as well, much further back than that throughout history. But then at some point it went to Kate Moss, right? Who was just like (laughs) significantly underweight, would you say? I mean, just tiny. I mean, that's the beauty of the Pomeranian uh, golden retriever (laughs) metaphor. She was a a Pomeranian. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing she probably dieted a bunch, but like, I'm sure she was also born to a very specific yeah. body type, right? Like there's oh, yeah. no, there's no judgment. I, I love the the thins and the fats. Okay. <laughs> All right. and, and actually speaking of no judgment, I think this is really important because a lot of people hear this stuff, right? Like diet culture is trapping you. It's a prison and, um, our bodies are designed to be whatever they're going to be. And you need to just love yourself and accept yourself. And, um, and the healthiest way to be is somewhere in your set point, right? Because your body optimally works to maintain that. So if you fight it, you're actually hurting your metabolism. You're actually hurting your, your emotional life too, right? You waste all this time and energy. All of that said, that's a quick like little summary of what we've just talked about. We can all understand that intellectually. But the emotional element, the emotional attachment we have to a hope for a better body, a different body, a smaller body, that's a dream we've held since we were whatever age that we started having that dream. And that dream is so tied up in worth, ability to attract a partner. I mean, these are fundamental human needs, right? These are huge. So just letting go of that just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't just intellectually get out of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a hugely emotional journey and there's a ton of grief to work through. And if you're in a smaller body, it's a different path than if you're in a bigger body. Because if you're in a smaller body, it's an internal journey, right? You're not getting feedback from the world that you're giving up, that you're Mm -hmm. costing the healthcare system huge amounts of money that you're ruining their experience in, on an airplane because you're taking up too much room, right? Like you're not experiencing those horrific uh, stigmatizing events in your life. You have your internal journey, which is legit, but it's, it's different, right? And then if you're in a larger body and you're experiencing actual out in the world stigma, um, it's a social justice journey too. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of me too, like, the grief I think is real. And like I said, I'm not a hundred percent there. Like I'm still in the, still in the matrix to some extent, like I'm definitely working and learning and I feel like it's helpful, but it, but it's still, you know, I'm intellectually fighting against what you're saying. Cause I don't necessarily <laughs> want it to be true. But in addition to that, like now I'm fucking mad at myself for like dieting and messing up my set point, right? Like, God damn uh-huh. it. You're telling me I made it go up? Like now I'm pissed at my younger self too. Um, well, and you probably could very quickly transition to being pissed at the world. Oh, yeah. For absolutely. Telling, telling you the wrong information. Yeah. Yeah, I, we, we, we do better when we know better, I guess, theoretically. Um, but uh, yeah, I was super angry. So, you know, the stages of grief, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anger, right? Number one, 
Yeah. Super angry. Angry. When at I myself. thought that in, I, I feel like it's not dissimilar to quitting drinking, right? Nope. We all Very have this similar. voice in our head that whispers to us that drinking is a good idea. And it's been internalized since you were a child watching adults drink, right? The whole concept of adult beverages and the whole marketing system about like drinking is required and that, you know, even the medical studies about like red wine is good for you. That is actually totally fucking untrue because (laughs) people who don't drink in those studies had a reason they didn't drink, right? Whether it was medical or they used to drink a lot. And so the, Mm -hmm. the baseline of the idea that people who drink some moderately are healthier than those who don't drink at all is factually untrue. And, you know, the medical research has finally admitted that 50, 60, 80 years later. And, you know, you've internalized this voice that drinking is mm-hmm. a good idea and you actually think it's your own. But in mm-hmm. reality, it's it's been brainwashing and it's the, you know, all the things. So it's, you know, I know that when I quit drinking, when a lot of women quit drinking, they go to, you know, pretty quickly um, after they get out of the thing, they they get angry at like, you guys fucked me up and this is bullshit and you brainwashed everyone. And you've told me that this thing that is a super addictive and making me ill and increasing my anxiety, depression, you told me it was helping me, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if it's a similar process. Oh, it, it is. It's very similar. And living in the world, once your eyes have been opened, it's identical. Yeah. You can see that other people are still in the matrix, right? Yeah. And, and you're trying to operate within norms that are just the opposite of what yeah. you believe now. Well, and it's the same and idea that, that, that like recovery ruins you for drinking. I mean, I'm in that process <laughs> yeah. of like knowing this information is like ruining me for dieting and yet <laughs> I'm like fighting against it. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, I do. it's like, dude, this is fucking confusing. Like you're Mm -hmm. telling me something that is very different than what I've been led to believe and internalize my whole life. And you feel like that voice when, you know, full disclosure, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, what the fuck? Get your shit together. Why can't Mm -hmm. you just lose this weight that, and get back to where you were at 27, you know, Mm -hmm. after two children at the age of 45. Um, you know, what's wrong with you, get some discipline. Again, you think it's your own voice and it's actually the internalized beauty standards that surround you 24 seven that are Mm -hmm. telling you something that is not true, but you think it's your own, you know, inner critic. You don't realize it's your inner critic voice. That's not actually your own. Well, there's even like the added parallel to drinking here with the marketing machine. Oh yeah. People profit. If you look at the quote unquote obesity epidemic chart, right? Like where weights, generalized weights in the world went up in the last 40 years. That is true, which I think is fascinating, but we don't know why. We really don't. There's a whole, whole industry around studying why people are getting fatter, why the average size is now for women is 14, 16, right? Like, why is that? And, you know, they say sedentary lifestyle, um, the food chain you know, blah, processed blah, blah. food, easy, processed food, the fact exactly. that fast food is cheap access to like, or the switch to the fake sugar or whatever it's called. Um, uh, yeah. You, you know what I mean? That liquid 
sugar, sugar cane. It's not that it's something. It's anyway. not real sugar. It's the fake sugar. Anyway, can't believe I'm forgetting that. Forgive me. Maybe you can splice in the correct. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> I know exactly um, what you're talking about. I've heard all yeah, this stuff. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of theories, none of which have been proven to be singularly responsible. And they probably are. It's probably a mix of all those things. But alongside all of that stuff, we had the diet industry growth and diet industry profit growth. And one of, one of the most interesting things I heard was this business call. It was like the CFO of Weight Watchers was talking about how proud he was that um, people on Weight Watchers statistically now are showing that they're maintaining past two years, I think is their mark. Maybe it's one, right? Like nobody studies past one year, by the way, if they're in the diet industry because the stats are so bad, but they're maintaining a five pound weight loss and yeah. proudly announced how successful that is. I was going to say that's pretty pathetic because as someone who has done Weight Watchers, nobody joins Weight Watchers to lose five pounds. Nobody, but that's what they're proud of that they've maintained five pounds under their original weight. In my brain, that's going probably... all these different points, but I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but inherently isn't eating spinach healthier for you than eating mm. a Big Mac ah. from McDonald's. It's got to be, right? Sure. Yeah. What, what's the question? Well, <laughs> <laughs> aren't you going to be healthier if you eat lots of spinach and therefore isn't it good that you're beating yourself up to eat all the spinach and not all the shit? Mm. Okay. Interesting. I'm going to separate the beating yourself up part. <laughs> Well, how the, else would you choose spinach the, over? I'm just kidding. Yeah. Look, again, back back to healthism. Like you, you, there is nothing wrong with pursuing health. What I what I try to help people to get to in my coaching biz is a place where it's totally weight neutral. So you have this. You see your food choices, and you know the first step is to learn to unrestrict because any form of restriction is is the root cause, the seed for binging. So emotional restriction, actual food restriction, those two things, mental restriction, whatever word you want to use, those are the things that actually breed binging um, because your body physiologically freaks out. It's like, oh, she's not having sugar this week. (laughs) I better kick into high gear, like the cravings for sugar. And by the way, I'm going to slow my metabolism down because I don't want her to lose weight. I want her to stay where she is. So that's the body's reaction. So that's why we binge when we restrict, right? That's, that's where emotional eating comes in. In fact, I actually, um, emotional eating can be two very different things. Like, and we most commonly call it emotional eating when we're eating without being quote unquote hungry. But there's, there's a form of emotional eating that is incredibly healing and wonderful right you're eating with a best friend and it's just this social juicy experience that the food enhances and maybe you're not starving or hungry but you know but you're sharing a pint of ice cream with a friend and it's so satisfying emotionally that that's like what i would call real emotional eating <laughs> right or you're really lonely and sad and a bag of chips really makes you feel better just the mindless you know whatever when most people talk about it, they're saying like, I'm just eating and I'm not hungry. And typically that's rooted in, I am 
you know, I haven't allowed myself to eat full meals through the day. So I'm actually hungry. I don't notice it. And then I just shove whatever's in front of me in my face. Right. Like, and, and, and the shame around that is what causes the next restriction round, right? Like, oh shit, I, I had a whole bag of chips. That was just way more than I should have. So tomorrow I'll like skip breakfast or I'll have the healthy breakfast instead of the unhealthy breakfast. And then later that next day or a week later, like that's planted the seed again in your body that it reacts to. And it, you know, you will mindlessly eat again because it, it's trying to correct for the mm. restriction. That's all it's doing. It's neutral. It's not like trying to make you ugly. It's not trying to make you, you know what I mean? Um, it's literally just the body is so hardwired to keep you where you are. Stasis. So what um, happens that, when you stop doing that? Uh, it's really interesting. So I'll, <laughs> I'll sort of dip into my story because it's yeah. a weird one. Um, so I did it. I did what the, the wiser sober people told me to do. And I, I just completely unrestricted my eating. As I mentioned, I ate a lot of food and, but I was planning in my head six months in, I'm going to allow myself to diet again. Right. So it, you know, in advance, like I'll go back to normal in six months once my sobriety is settled, which I think is a really common plan. Yeah. Right? Like a lot definitely. of women are like, sure, sure. I'll let go of the reins for now but I'm going to set a plan for this date when sugar's off the table because it's toxic and addictive and I don't want to transfer my addiction or I'm, I'm going to get my eating weight, under right? control or I'm going to. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so I made that plan just like kind of everybody else. And then uh, I, I've said this <laughs> a few times, this story, but um, I got a really big fight with my husband. Um, it was about three or four months into sobriety and uh, I was so, so, so freaked out by this fight. And I, I went downtown to the studio apartment, which you are familiar with Casey. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was between renters. So it was empty. And I went to the city target and I picked up like binge food because I wasn't going to drink and I wasn't going to do anything else. Um, and I needed some kind of soothing, right. I needed some way of making myself. Is it feel like when you're drinking, better. like you're eating at someone like you're, yeah. Your hints, like, yes, because you know, lots of people drink at someone exactly like that. And I had historically been a dieter, like severe restriction, and then this crazy binges, right? Which would make me feel high, like it was that compulsion, right? Like, so that that little dopamine cycle. So that's what I was looking for. I was looking for the high of that escape and just you know, eat, 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 eat until like I felt better. I mean, obviously, I knew. I wouldn't feel physically good at the end of all of that, but like I wanted to feel emotionally somehow taken care of. So I bought all this food, brought it back to the studio apartment. And um, (laughs) I got about halfway through like one thing that I had bought and I was full and I was bored. And I was like, Jesus, this isn't working. Like, this is really, really annoying. Like I can't more. And that, I can tell you in absolute 100% honesty had never happened to me before. Hmm. Like when I was in that kind of heightened emotional state, food was always my go-to and it always worked at least to a degree, right? It would at least like taste good, but I was just sitting there like, this is nothing. This is not helping me. This is a void. And I was so mad about it because I was like, this was my last, you know, (laughs) remaining (laughs) uh, self-destructive tool, right? Like, (laughs) and I I was kind of annoyed, Uh, but I was also like, I was curious about it. And um, 
as you know, I was already struggling with all of this stuff. I was trying to figure out like, should I be dieting? Should I not be dieting? Like I'd already heard about health at every size. I'd already heard about the anti-diet movement. I'd already like intellectually, just like where you are, you're saying you are, I don't want to assume where you are, but like I had intellectually gotten this stuff, but I wasn't ready to commit to it and dive in. But that moment is when the light bulb went off and I was like, oh my gosh, I've been eating so much that my body physiologically has adjusted to this new normal where I'm not restricting anymore. And it it's no longer getting that dopamine high, that compulsive high from eating because it's all legalized. It's all approved of, right? Is it like less of the forbidden fruit? Like kind exactly, of exactly. And it was gone, like gone. Now, have I been able to sort of re- <laughs> re-engage with those old habits periodically in this process? Absolutely. Because it's not like I erased my history of dieting and, and body shame. But that moment was like very big for me because I hadn't really believed that there was a world in which my body would literally tell me, stop. And not like stop because you're full, not stop because you're over full, which is my usual, right? It was literally just, uh, like, move on, try something else. Let's go get a massage. Like it was, it was so interesting. And Mm -hmm. so all the theory started to pull together into my experience of it. This unrestricting, this constant unrestricting had kind of without my brain changing really had changed my body's level of trust in me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, And yeah, I gained weight. As I said, it was like, I don't remember how much, but I mean, you've known me all this time. I'm still wearing the exact same clothes I was wearing. Yeah. I never noticed you're always, you know, yeah, like Like hardly, I I, just to be clear, I wasn't even weighing myself. So I'm just guessing, right. Based Mm -hmm. on how tight my pants felt or whatever. Um, But I have completely undone like my, my rules around food and my body has just settled. It's just settled. And of course I eat differently now, now that like, there's not this desire to lose weight. Like, um, I choose the spinach (laughs) when a, like, I want something a little lighter, right. On my palate, um, or something crunchy. Like usually actually I do romaine. I don't like spinach that much, but like I want, um, something crunchy or watery because I'm like somehow wanting something with water or I want fiber because I'm backed up or like whatever, right? Like I'll eat quinoa instead of rice sometimes because it's got more fiber. Like, but literally to like functionally change things in my digestive system, not, or because I'm in the mood for it, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, I Um, have a green smoothie every morning, but like with the like chocolate protein powder. And I actually like fucking love it. Like if you love it, you love it. That's awesome. Yeah. But I never used to have it. Like, you know, I, that was not my breakfast. And so my question is, because all my, I'm just going to ask the questions and you can tell me I'm wrong because, you know, that's part of the, I'm sure anyone listening has the same, like, wait, wait, but what about this? So what about this? Awesome. Go. Isn't it like drinking where you like crave what you consume? So Mm. when you eat a bunch of, you know, crap, Uh processed fast food, I mean, isn't, a, isn't some food inherently less healthy for you than others? Like anti, you know, isn't McDonald's crap for you? And isn't it addictive too? And doesn't it 
make you want to mm. eat more of it. And all those questions that are going off in my head, like, cause with drinking, yeah. you, you know, the idea of like one is too much, it lights up your brain and all of it is not enough. Like to me that, that hits yeah. me too. Like if you just avoid it, it's easier. So tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, this is like the, the golden nugget. Um, this is what your question is literally why I'm coaching. Okay. Today. Because um, what I learned is that food, um, food is uh, physiologically incredibly different than toxic substances like alcohol and drugs. And that's and, why we need to talk about this on the like yeah. sobriety podcast, right? Because this is something yeah. that like we all buy into and we're like, yeah, 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 uh-huh. I quit drinking, but fuck, I don't want to replace that addictive habit with this new addictive habit that is quote yeah. unquote equally damaging. And by the way, also mm-hmm. comes with the negative societal response as opposed to drinking, which often is encouraged by society, right? So it's that, sure. I mean, there's a lot of shit there. Yeah, there's a lot of shit there. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's a lot to unpack. I'm going to try to think of how to, where to start, but um, our bodies are born requiring food and eventually with, you know, with very natural, strong drives. The first is food. <laughs> then eventually we get sex. Right. And then, uh, you know, whatever, as we get older, these are the fundamental things that survival depend on. We are not born. Our brain is not born craving or requiring drugs or alcohol. Right. So when you consume alcohol, let's just use wine. (laughs) That's my, my favorite um, or was Um, when you consume alcohol, you actually change your brain. It actually deforms your brain process and kind of breaks your dopamine system. Like, you know how, when you're recovering early from early sobriety and you feel depressed and then you have the pink cloud and then you're depressed, all of that, or that numb feeling, I think is a better, better description. Well, you fucked up your whole joy pleasure systems by like setting your dopamine off the charts with this substance that then Mm -hmm. sends you into withdrawal. Like, yeah, anyone who's interested, there is a ton of research around this, but like, Basically, yeah. alcohol and drugs completely fucks up your ability to feel joy at any normal yes. stimulus. Yes. And and physiological addiction is in part defined by needing more and more to feel normal slash high, right? Like high at first and then eventually to just feel normal and blah, blah, blah. Because you've actually actively damaged your dopamine system, your pleasure reward system. That's alcohol and drugs. You're born wanting food and food is designed, including sugar (laughs) is designed to light up that reward system, right? You remember that whole study that like sugar is the same as heroin um, or cocaine or whatever. Uh, That's actually just for the record, anyone listening out there been debunked a million times. Like I could send you all the links of the That's like the red wine's good for your heart kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, So they actually starved the goddamn rats. And then said, oh, look, they like the sugar more than the heroin. Because <laughs> they're starving. Oh, uh, yeah, they're hungry. Okay. Um, so let's just put that aside because I'll happily disprove that offline with everybody who's interested, right? But sugar is not actually as addictive as as, um, as heroin. It doesn't have a physiological withdrawal. It doesn't have, you know, it's not. It's not okay, so I mentally buy into that. Like, I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's not as. A- okay. 
I'm sure okay. other people so, don't, but I'm like, yeah, that makes intellectual sense to me that heroin is more addictive than yes, sugar. Yes, yes. So we are hardwired, I can't say this enough, to enjoy food. It lights up our dopamine and our reward system because if we didn't, we would starve to death and die and our species would go away, right? Just like sex, you know, lights up the reward system Mm -hmm. because we need to reproduce to survive as a species. These are incredibly fundamental drives. This is not artificially lighting up our dopamine reward system, right? This is like fundamental. So when you remove alcohol after actively messing up the system, Mm -hmm. if you're continuously sober, your brain starts to heal and it gets easier and easier and easier because you're abstaining from a toxic substance, foreign substance, right? That was messing you up, right? So your body actually has the equipment to heal. And it can actually get better and go back to normal-ish, right? Like, depending on how far. (laughs) Um, And that's a beautiful thing. And so we learn in quitting drinking that absolute abstinence from from the substance allows your body and your brain to heal. And it becomes easier and easier and easier to live without it, right? Over time. With food, and that includes artificial crap like McDonald's food and sugar, right? Because these are just calories. It's just energy. It's what your body is designed to want. If you restrict it, and if you abstain from it, there is this incredibly complicated process that kicks in in your body to slow your metabolism down, to make you crave that thing, to like stop you from restricting or abstaining. So if you think of diets, diets are like a rubber band that you're just pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling until eventually your body, which is hardwired to do this, is going to say, nope. And you snap. Whereas abstinence from alcohol is hard at first, but it gets easier and easier and easier because it's a foreign substance that you're getting rid of. It's completely different physiologically. Mm-hmm. So what I like to think of um, dieting is like holding your breath. Mm. Or okay, that's really interesting st- to me. Or or a staring contest. The longer you do it, your body's gonna be like, nope, I need air. I need some liquid on my eyes, right? Like that is dieting. Abstinence from alcohol is uh, just the opposite. (laughs) You're just saying they are fundamentally different. So do what you can to debunk, learn, put it out of your mind that like quitting drinking is similar to um, removing food that make you gain weight, quote unquote, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to caveat very okay. quickly because I bet you there are hundreds of people listening to this who say to themselves, okay, but sugar makes me break out. It ruins my sleep. I, um, uh, it's toxic in so many ways. I'm, I'm just not going to list all of them. It has nothing to do with controlling my weight. I abstain from processed sugars because they make me feel bad. They give me a headache, right? If that's in, a, in if you fully examined that and that's really true, it's weight neutral. For heaven's sake, don't eat sugar. I don't care, right? Like <laughs> I don't want, you don't have to eat sugar. You do not have to eat McDonald's, right? Like you do not have to eat anything you don't want to eat. And if you want to pursue health above all else, um, there are a lot better, more expert people in the world who can help you do that, right? Like eat nutritionally balanced meals, etc. 
Um, these are all things that are totally personal choice. We're all adults here. You can do whatever you want. What I'm suggesting is that if you're abstaining from sugar because you feel crazy around it, because you eat it compulsively, the odds are it's because you've restricted it in the past. And if you loosen those restrictions, you won't eat it compulsively anymore. And then you can make a weight neutral decision how much sugar you want to have in your life. It can be none, it can be lots, it can be somewhere in between. Um, but until you disentangle it from uh, intentional weight loss and management of your body, which is out of your control anyway, um, then, you know, then you can't make those adult choices about whether you want to eat it. So again, like if you think sugar is toxic, awesome, but um, you do not have to eat it. So why <laughs> does everyone say that you are going to crave sugar in early sobriety and that you should not deny yourself sugar in early sobriety? So there's a lot of, there are a lot of theories around this. I bet you know even more than I do, um, frankly, because you're a sober coach. But um, my understanding is that our dopamine system is super damaged from alcohol. And when you eat sugar, you kind of, uh, you're, you're allowing yourself to be mentally vaguely stable through the early sobriety process because you're in this, you know, kind of dopamine withdrawal state. And until you heal that system, sugar is a great quick way to kind of stabilize that mm -hmm. and not have you feel horrible because <laughs> I want to go back to drinking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because alcohol does have a ton of sugar in it. Mm -hmm. and then you're, you know, one of the reasons, and it's, it's probably very different. Like I said, I'm, I'm new to, to the work that you do, um, is one of the reasons that we don't recommend and why so many of us have probably tried to do whole 30 and tried to quit drinking and been like, Oh, this is going to be fucking fantastic. I'm going to not only kick this addictive habit that I've been worried about for years, but I'm also going to lose a shitload of weight. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then break down is because, you know, getting rid of alcohol is incredibly hard. And the first two weeks, especially and then day 16 to 18 is incredibly hard and it requires a singular focus. And if you try to do everything at once, a lot of times we're just like, no, 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 I'm just eliminating all this food and going on a diet. And you don't actually even examine the emotional, you know, the reasons that you drink, the reasons that you want to reward, the reasons that, you know, you're angry, hurt, upset, bored, you know, and you do really need to bubble up. And so, you know, I always say like early sobriety shouldn't feel like deprivation. It really shouldn't. It should feel like you're actually taking care of yourself what your body needs, mm -hmm. what your mind needs, what your emotions need for the very first time, often as an adult, since you quit drinking, you're no longer like knocking yourself unconscious with wine. So like, for God's sakes, don't, you know, get rid of the alcohol and then also not address your emotional, mental, habitual needs in any other way, because you're just, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a little theory about it, um, which is that a lot of us women um, go through restriction cycles, right? We've, we've all dieted. Maybe not everybody. My apologies. to the <laughs> They're like unicorns which, out there. God yeah, bless them. Yeah. Who have yeah. not. 
And sort of like, you know, my story of my binge that didn't work out right um, with my husband um, in the beginning, the, the eating was so soothing. It really helped. It really helped to just give myself permission to have the ice cream or to have the dark chocolate or to have the whatever it was um, to eat whatever I needed to eat. Um, and I think the reason it was so effective and so soothing was because I'd had years of dieting behind me. It's like that wonderful, like, ah, oh, I've been let out of jail and this food tastes better than it's ever tasted because I'm allowing it for the first time. And, uh, and it's really, really powerful. And then as you're sober for longer and you, you know, you've given yourself permission to eat for longer, the power of that food soothing tool kind of dissipates. Mm-hmm. But you have to have faith that that's, that's the case. You know what I mean? You have to trust it in the same way you have to trust people really? that putting drinking is better. And that's hard yeah. to hard to do. The other thing I would say is, and I saw this in myself and I see it a lot in women I work with, like you said, I mean, I can't believe you hadn't eaten an English muffin in years. That to me is, <laughs> is amazing. And honestly, kind of weird. I'm, you know, like, I'm just like, but English muffins aren't, you know, we all believe there's this good food and this bad. I'm like, English muffins oh, yeah, aren't bananas. bad. I haven't um, had a banana for years either. Oh, you're kidding me. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing is like the idea of we save all our calories for alcohol, which I did forever, mm. right? Like mm-hmm. um, I used to go out to dinner and never order dessert. I've been, and I literally would say out loud, oh, I saved my calories for red wine, right? Or I would order mm-hmm. a port for dessert, which is all I want to do is keep, keep the buzz going and keep drinking. I wasn't ready to be done. You know, I had a client who was like, oh my God, I had brie. I haven't had brie in a decade. And I'm like, or like, they're like, oh, I don't let myself have sugar. And I'm like, yeah, but we're drinking a bottle of wine tonight. Like, how's that? How's that working out for you? You know what I mean? So yeah, one of the great things about quitting drinking is you do get to be like, oh my God, there is this universe of amazing tasting things and pleasures Mm. in the world that I have you know, had such like, you know, tunnel vision and blinders on that I never like, oh my God, you, you haven't had Brie in a decade. Brie's fucking amazing. You know, like that's (laughs) a, that's a goddamn shame, you know, like that kind of thing. Yes. Yes, it is. And it's, it's this incredible opportunity to explore again from the beginning, from scratch, you know, what do I love? What do I love to eat? What makes me feel good? What, you know, Yeah. And like the whole idea of like, you know, if wine, if whatever your drink of choice is, is your only reward or your favorite reward or your reward and treat that accompanies everything else you do in life, like live music or sitting by a campfire or singing or whatever it is, right? If, if alcohol is your constant companion, and eventually becomes the focus, right? You don't know whether you like it because of the alcohol or you like it because it's actually just fucking fun, even without the alcohol. Like that shows a shocking lack of creativity. And I say that without judgment. <laughs> That's where I was. That's where I was yeah. for 20 years, right? Like, but, but you're mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I've been so focused on this one thing to the exclusion of doing anything that didn't involve it in my free time Mm -hmm. in the evenings, you know, that kind of thing. I used to be so proud of myself if I skipped dinner and just had two bottles of wine. 
two bottles. I mean, I'm not judging. Yeah. I used to have two bottles Ouch. too, but like, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I say that and I'm like, yep, did that too. I don't think I was proud of myself for skipping dinner because I didn't do that. Apparently I wasn't quite as immersed as you were, but I'm sure I was like 95% there. Like I never gave up bagels or English muffins or bananas. Um, but I would, you know, I used to, I did Weight Watchers and I would literally log it. I can't believe I wrote this down and showed it to a fucking trainer. Cause she was like, what, what? But I would be like, <laughs> you know, egg white omelet for breakfast, like, you know, salad for lunch, Aww. salmon and asparagus for dinner six glasses of wine. And she felt like I took this long tour on the regular and she would, you know, Uh this is before I was fully aware of that. I had a drinking problem and kind of was like, oh shit, I shouldn't tell people that that's what Mm -hmm. I drink. But she'd be like, what, you know, what are you doing? Like maybe cut out the wine or, you know, go back to two glasses. And I was just like, uh, but I was like, no, no, no. Like I'm in my points. Like I, you know, glass of wine's two points. Like what the fuck? I just had six of them. That's 12, you know? So like, I hear what you're saying, like skipping dinner and drinking two bottles of wine. Like I like to be like, oh no, I I didn't do that yet. I was having the smallest number of food calories I could possibly like get away with. And half of my calorie intake was alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, and again, calories in calories out, we got to ditch that whole concept. Yeah. But in terms of the topic, I wanted to ask you two things. I, we talked briefly before we got on about movement. I am working. I had hurt my back in January. I am working out again for the first time. It feels so good. I'm happier. I'm, you know, and, and we talked about trying to, how tied that is into, triggering your own thoughts about like, okay, okay. And I'm going to lose weight and X, Y, Z and diet culture. And I'm so even in the motivation for it. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to ask you at the end, like, what's the end goal of diet recovery? So I want to make sure we have time to like cover those two things. Yes. So first let's talk about movement. Cause you said that was coming up for you too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this was before we got on the the call. So um, I am I've been in active diet recovery, which is a term that's not really well known. But the idea is that I'm just trying to adopt um, a health at every size stance, be weight neutral about my food, no longer restrict my food, et cetera, right? Um, and, and come to some peace and acceptance about my body and invest in my well-being from a weight neutral lens. So five years of that now, because I started this right when I quit drinking, um, which is a whole other story. Um, but I have actively avoided pursuing physical fitness for this whole time. And the reason for that is every time I dip my toe into it, like, um, trying to get back into jogging or, um, going on power walks or whatever the hell, right. Yoga even. Right. Um, I automatically, it's just this so ingrained I automatically go into this. If I do this every day, my body will change in the following ways. Or uh, I get like, you know, oh no, I, you know, I shouldn't eat this because um, uh, I didn't do my yoga thing this morning or I didn't go for my walk, right? Like that sort of equating like my worthiness, my, my, <laughs> I'm allowed to have food if I do this, right? Yeah. All those diet, diet culture, fitness related 
connections. The, like it's the neurons equation, and if you want to lose weight, you got to eat under fourteen hundred calories or mm-hmm. earn your earn your calories. Yep. yep. And movement has always been a punishment for me. It's always been a like if you eat this, you have to do this, right? Um, and it's so sad that started really young. Yeah. Um, even though after doing all these things, I always feel better, right? Even though I have that intellectual understanding of how this is really good. I just, um, or I'm more tired and I sleep better or whatever. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm moving into, um, my own process of in, in integrating intuitive movement into my life and intuitive movement is just joyful movement. Um, stopping when I'm tired, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like you can sort of guess what it means. Um, and then just working through the emotional triggers, just like I did when I was giving up dieting, right? And you just step by step, you sort of try to notice the trigger, um, counteract it with a different thought, and just practice that over and over, right? Like it's just like anything with alcohol quitting, it's the same idea. You notice the thought, you see it as you know a little bit more neutral because if you've noticed it, it's farther away from you, right? Like you have that mm-hmm. observational gap that's really important. It's like meditation, right? I'm, I'm getting distracted by this thought, blah blah blah. We'll notice it, and then it'll become less distracting right so that's the work um but uh i'm extremely excited about going through this like actively working on this because it i know it's going to be transformative for me it's going to yeah. be a very big deal and it's just i've been waiting to feel 100% comfortable in the food part before really tackling this when i noticed that too because you know i actually had done this early morning you know, you know, I work out with a bunch of moms in this really great group. And I used to do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 530. And then Saturday and Sunday, like I actually really liked it. And it was a huge part of me making friends when I moved from Seattle to the east side and feeling connected with people. And they're all like just smart women who happen to be moms. And so, you know, but we meet with no kids. And so we actually talk Mm. more about like, our careers and our lives and our emotions and our interests than I do with most other people, you know what I mean? Where you're just like, Mm -hmm. how are the kids? Like, we're like, we see each other every day. I don't give a shit about your kid. I mean, you know, like if they're getting (laughs) in trouble, let's talk about it. If you're super proud of them, but you know, we're most of the, we're talking about other stuff. And so I had been doing that, you know, while dieting, not dieting, losing weight, gaining weight, but that, that was consistent. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was a big part of my sobriety like getting up at 5 30 mm-hmm. and actually not doing burpees with a bottle of wine in my belly. That was, that was big. That was like a, what is good about not drinking? Well, doing burpees hung over just fucking <laughs> right. But I was doing them. So when I was doing them without being hung over, I was like, this is amazing, you know? And so with COVID that stopped. Right. And, um, you know, yes, we were supposed to do Zoom workouts. Maybe some people did them. I didn't like them. I'm motivated by other people. I work harder with other people, like even getting in my car and driving to where the workout was helped me get up, like getting up and working out is hard. But like after getting there, this is all to say that I didn't do it basically for eight months. Then we went back October to December. We had one session in person before Washington locked down again. And we went back to Zoom. And then when we went back to Zoom, my mother showed up for two and a half months and I hurt my back. So I didn't do it again. Well, basically a week ago, I went back to the outdoor workouts and oh my God, my life, my optimism, my energy, my just feeling of being a happy person 
um, has already come back. And I think it's Mm. all of it, right? So Mm -hmm. like separating the diet culture, the food, the weight from like not tying that to exercise, which is at least for me does really improve my mood. And when I'm with a group, I'm not like, oh shit, I'm not fast enough. I just like these women, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more I read about the science around exercise and sleep, those are the two things that I've been kind of accidentally binge reading books about um, because Emily and Amelia Nagoski wrote that book, Burnout, which has a whole section, brand new book, whole section about completing the stress cycle. And the number one best, easiest way to complete the stress cycle is exercise. And uh, she, Emily Nagoski also wrote a book called Come As You Are, which ta- is about sex and stuff, but it talks about how stress is like a major break on your desire for sex. Um, and one of the best ways to relieve stress again, right, is to exercise, is to complete that stress cycle. And then of course, sleep, sleep is magic. Sleep does everything for you. Like it's sober sleep is from the day amazing. It's amazing. It is. And it's, it creates, you know, a healthy balanced metabolism in your body too, like for food processing, right? Um, so I am sold on the power of exercise. And I think, um, there is no question. In fact, I think I told you earlier that I bought a Peloton, which yeah, I cannot believe I'm, I can't believe I bought a Peloton, but I joined this group on Facebook. That's a health at every size anti-diet Peloton user group, which is freaking awesome. Yeah. And what I'm learning, because there's a really active community, like super passionate about the Peloton, right? Which oh my God. Thing. There are a lot of um, sober Peloton like, groups too. Oh, cool. Yeah. And super passionate. And my anxiety um, was that I'd be doing these classes on the Peloton and I'd be filled with diet talk, right? Weight loss talk, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. Change, change your body, change your life. Like, and every single person on this group was like, no, the Peloton's amazing. The teachers, you know, never talk about that. Or, you know, there's might be one teacher who does, you know, stuff about his own diet history, whatever. Um, and I'm just super excited because it feels like the rest of the world is sort of catching on to this concept yeah. that fitness is not about weight. You can be a marathon runner and be super fat, right? You can, you can do these, you can participate. It's really um, emotionally challenging if you're big going into the gym, right? There's a lot of stigma and you, people make assumptions that you're there to lose weight, for example, right? Or, you know, they'll start telling you, offering tips for, you know, more reps, you, you know, to, to tone, right? When maybe you want strength, right? There are so many things. Oh my God. When you're saying, I mean, yes, I see all that, like all the tips for everything. And yeah. And it reminds me of unsolicited when when you're pregnant (laughs) or when you have a baby and it's somehow like everyone and their grandmother feels like they can come up and tell you that you should be using cloth diapers or that formula is bad or that. And it's like, how are you the fucking expert on this? Like you're not, you know, it's just, it's, you know, oh, you need to let them cry it out. Like I, it just, in terms of unsolicited and actually unhelpful and often uninformed advice to Mm -hmm. someone who is in a delicate place or not, like, it's just, Mm -hmm. it is infuriating, right? Because everybody thinks they're an Mm -hmm. expert. Well, and there's all this well-meaning, oh, the worst is if you're like doing a 5k and if you're in a bigger body and you might not be at the front of the 5k pack and people go, woohoo, you're just so great for doing this, right? This like, 
uh, it's hard to explain why it's so awful, but it's just so like awful. patronizing. Don't, don't, just patronizing. Yeah. Don't do that. If you're out in the world and you see someone fat exercising, don't <laughs> root them on from your car. It's <laughs> really insulting. They might be better athletes than you and you need to shut up. Right. Yeah. Like it's, I, I'm done with all that shit. Sorry. Little rant, but, yeah. um, but the, this is the point is that it, it is completely separate from changing your body. Um, now with all that said, of course you can change your body with fitness, right? Like you're become more toned. You can become heavier because your muscles are building up or, I mean, all sorts of things. Um, it's, it's the food thing that your body will say, no, your body will say, do not restrict the food and it'll do whatever it can to get you to eat the food. So that's what binging is. That's what crazy is. That's what compulsion. That's what feeling addicted to sugar is. It's your body just saying, uh, 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 uh. So if you just let go of that, you won't feel those things anymore. Yeah. Okay. So last question, what is the end goal of diet recovery? So the end goal is, uh, let, let me start with the people who I work with so far, um, come to me with the intellectual understanding already. It's like they've vetted themselves, right? They've read Linda Bacon's health at every size, or they've read Evelyn Triboli's intuitive eating, right? Like they're, they're, they're starting to see already that dieting isn't delivering what they want it to deliver. And they want to try something new, but they're not bought in emotionally to the idea of truly giving up weight loss as a goal, right? So the diet recovery coaching process is like mostly guiding people through um, the emotional hangups that we have, clinging to the hope of a different body. And, and what are all the different reasons why that's um, a pretty fruitless thing to do? And sometimes actually actively counterproductive to your goal, right? If your goal is to make your body smaller and you continue to diet, you know, eventually you're going to be bigger than you started. So like just statistically speaking. So it's, it's helping people walk through that grieving process, the anger, the denial, the bargaining, bargaining is hilarious. I, I did so much bargaining. Like I'm ready. I'm ready to give up dieting as long as I don't end up at this weight. Yeah. Cause that weight is unacceptable. <laughs> That's the wrong weight. Yeah. Everything else is fine. I'm totally on board, <laughs> but if I get to that weight, I'm dieting again. And actually my coach at the time said, great diet again. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but there is this like, okay, what's the alternative? And plan A is to lose weight intentionally below my set point range and try to maintain it. And we know that's not sustainable and statistically nearly impossible. What is plan B? So diet recovery is walking you through plan B and plan B when you get to the end of it, which there is kind of no end. Yeah. Frankly, it's a life, right? Process. Like, cause we, we live in diet culture. It's not going away tomorrow, right? So, but it does help to really... recognize diet culture. Like when people say things or when yeah. you see advertising or even, you know, in the same way as drinking, right? It's it's this self-reinforcing loop that everybody in your ecosystem has bought into. So, you know, there are yeah. a million prompts on social media a day of like people being like, oh, you know, this is my treat. This is my reward. You need it to relax. Or like, God, why do you stop yes. drinking? Don't, do you have a problem? Like, you're not that bad. Like all that shit that happens in diet culture too, where you're like, holy shit, there are a million different comments a day, including from 
my woke, well-meaning friends. I mean, I'm sure I've perpetuated diet culture in my conversations with you a million times in, you know, five years. And God bless you for only calling me out on it, like 2% of them. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard. It's really, it's, um, living inside diet culture truly is very similar to living in mommy wine culture or drinking culture, right? Like it's once your eyes are opened again, um, it's very, very, very hard to not have the urge to call everybody out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, um, but so diet recovery, the end game, the end game is you eat what you want and want, I put in air quotes because want can be functional. Want can be health related want can be I'm eating this now so that I will feel fine tomorrow right like some foods like my fabulous pint of ice cream story and you know for me a pint of ice cream these days is a major calculation am I willing to feel pretty shitty (laughs) in an hour (laughs) if I eat this whole pint of ice cream now I make a different choice every time I eat ice cream it just, you know, it's a different choice. I make the choice though. There are people who are gluten sensitive, but not allergic, for example, who in this new construct, this new world of being recovered from diet binge cycling, um, will choose to eat gluten. Even people who are gluten allergic will choose to eat gluten because damn it, that pizza just is worth it. And I'm making that choice because I'm an adult and I'm allowed to do that. And people who are, um, have blood sugar problems, all the different issues, and um, they might choose to eat a lot of sugar, but know that to manage that so that they don't get really sick, they add fat fiber protein into the sugar eating session to keep their blood sugar from spiking. Like you just start thinking about it in a very different way. It's not about changing your body size anymore. It's literally what would taste the best now and potentially impact me later, right? Like you just have, you learn about what, how food affects you. And you learn um, what satisfies you. So there's like such a huge difference between fullness and satisfaction. And you just start to figure that out. And for me, for example, I don't feel satisfied unless I feel really full. That's me. That's how it's so ingrained from my childhood, whatever that was, right? The panic over there not being enough because I had you know, I'd be compete for food with my sisters or whatever it was, feeling really extra full is connected to feeling satisfied. I don't know if that'll always be true, but I accept it. That's just who I am. And hopefully and that's how this I would eat. be my goal that you would stop all the negative self-talk. I mean, I think I was surprised and untamed oh, yeah. that Glennon Doyle, you know, who um, clearly is, you know, a very successful woman and has done a shitload of self-actualized work you know, mm. says 50% of my thoughts every single day are negative thoughts about my appearance, my weight. And mm-hmm. I was just like, mm-hmm. or aging or whatever it is. And I was like, fuck you too. Like, <laughs> what the hell, <laughs> you know, but like, and, I and would it can hope make it that seem, yeah. with diet recovery, you could have more just, and not like self-compassion, meaning I'm going to like, feel sorry for myself and give myself a pass, but like truly stop that negative bullshit thought that, you know, is telling yourself like what the fuck is wrong with you every day. There are, it is really disheartening sometimes to see celebrities like Oprah, Brene Brown, uh, Glennon, 
my buddy Lennon, <laughs> uh, fat shaming themselves mm-hmm. because it's reinforcing the message that fat is bad, thin is good, right? Um, fat is self-created, thin is the correct body to have, um, and that everybody should feel badly about being fat if they are because it's, again, self-created and they could be thin. And that whole thing, that whole underlying message is what creates you know, diet culture, right? And creates that shame cycle, which by the way, also makes us all want to eat more, right? Like it's, it's so circular. Yeah. So that is sad. Um, I'm here to say officially that I do not think about this stuff anymore. Oh my God. Other than to help other people, other than to help other people through it, which can sometimes be weirdly triggering because I'm like, oh, I forgot I felt that way too. (laughs) Five years ago, but I'm sure that's the way it is as a sober coach, right? Like sometimes someone will say something and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Like, oh, Um, and and it's just, uh, but it is practice and it's slow. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, It's hard at first gets easier as you go, just like putting drinking. Yeah. And, um, and you practice. And so the the training I've done, which is two different certification programs, um, one being very centered around uh, uh, tools for noticing your, your thoughts that aren't supportive thoughts, right, that don't actually help you. And learning how to address those, right? Mm -hmm. Um, come up with different thoughts to counteract them, or at least get in the practice of noticing, right? We talked about that earlier. And the other training program was entirely around trauma-informed diet recovery, right? So because being, uh, hating yourself for your whole life, whether you're in a fat body or a thin body, um, is traumatic. Wow. And having uh, family members, family members tell you not to eat anymore, because you're getting ugly, basically, you're, you're getting fat, that's traumatic. I had um, never so, heard of, and I know you, I had never heard of trauma-informed diet recovery. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's part of the program because especially people living in fat bodies, you are living trauma daily, mm. right? Getting on a plane, imagine getting on a plane and having to deal with the the looks people give you, yeah. the nasty comments the getting the extra seatbelt extender, like that experience is my sort of pinnacle of the traumatic experience, but like having chairs that you can't fit in and even just having comments about your body thrown at you because it is like kind of the last remaining thing that people can be hateful about. Yeah. And Um, like emotional abuse as a child, you know what I mean? About not being loved or being rejected Mm -hmm. or being criticized, like you said, openly criticized. Well, and being told by the media and movies that you're consuming with your friends that your body is not lovable and worthy of romantic yeah. love. Yeah. Or rom- you're, you're, you see fat bodies as the funny friend your whole life. Yeah. Okay. Like, the work you do is so you. interesting. It's so valuable. I know a lot of people listening to this are going to have emotional reactions all over the board. And a lot of people are going to be like, okay, I need to learn more. I want to learn more. You're speaking my language, or at least what I hope I, I could feel in the future. So how can people get in touch with you? Um, so my coaching website is probably the first place to go. It's takeupspace.coach. <laughs> and I imagine Casey will put the link. Um, I will. I'll put, on the I'll page. put your uh, links in, in the show notes takeupspace.coach. Um, and you can also find me ingridmickelsonmiller.com if you'd like. Um, same same website. 
but spelling Mickelson is, is a bitch. So <laughs> leave that there. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to find it. Um, well, and there's a link on that website to set up a free discovery call if you want to just chat and, um, or maybe you just want to call me and yell at me about sugar. I'm totally open. Um, I'd love, <laughs> love to hear your, your thoughts. Wait, what about your uh, webinar? Isn't there, aren't you doing a webinar? Yes. Yes. On April 29th, uh, which is a Thursday. Um, and you can sign up to, to get all the details on my website. I'm going to be doing a webinar designed entirely around sugar diets and early sobriety. And all the stuff that I've talked about today um, will be covered, but there's also some other other little tidbits in there. Um, and it's just a, a, to help people who are struggling with this, who feel like they've transferred their addiction to sugar or transferred their addiction to food. And I know for me, that was a major, major scary trigger point in my early sobriety and almost caused me to go back to drinking. Um, so my hope is that this webinar will help you through that, um, no matter where you are in your sobriety journey, um, because I don't know, it's worth it. Yeah. It's worth working through this because sobriety itself, even if you stay a dieter, I don't care. Right. But sobriety <laughs> is worth it. And when you deprive yourself of certain foods or whatever, and really sobriety, it truly tricks your brain and you think you're you think you're craving alcohol and it yeah, just messes you up. That's what it is. You think you're craving alcohol yeah. and, you know, kicking alcohol, if it is problematic for you, will change your whole life in a positive way. Oh my God. So, in every way. And yeah. again, who cares if you fix your relationship with your body? I do personally, because that's my <laughs> mission in life now, but it's much more important to just ease up on yourself and focus on the drinking. So full circle, those older, wiser ladies who had those, the folksy advice, just eat whatever you want, smoke whatever you want, blah, blah, blah. They're right. They may not know why they're right. Yeah. <laughs> they, are, they, are, they are so right. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Ingrid. You know, I could talk to you for hours and I'm sure we will, but um, thanks for coming on the podcast and talking about this. I really appreciated the chance to talk about it. Thank you, Casey. Hopefully some of it made sense. And oh, it all made sense. Somebody. It all made sense. Thank you. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit Hello Someday coaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how 
how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.